One of my very favorite things about being a pastor is the opportunity to prepare couples for marriage. I really love doing that. And just last Sunday, as we gathered for worship, we had with us uh, Tucker Sigourney uh, with his new wife, Chelsea, and Jay Gardiner with his new wife, Martina. And um, they're both couples that I prepared for marriage just in this year. Um, and as I prepare couples for marriage, I know that they're entering into a wonderful thing, a beautiful new life of companionship and partnership and joy. But I also know that I need to prepare them for the coming conflict. Um, because, of course, the path of true love never did run smooth. Uh, the British writer and philosopher G.K. Chesterton quipped, marriage is a fight to the death. <laughs> so it's my job as a pastor to make sure the couples I meet with have a strong theological framework for thinking about their conflicts and some good tools for dealing with them peaceably and fairly. And one of my favorite tools for dealing with conflict in marriage is one that Sarah and I learned when we did marriage prep all those years ago. And uh, the person who taught it to us called it Peeves Night. All right, you're going to love me for this one. Peeves Night. Uh, the idea is that you set aside about half an hour every week and you find a quiet place to be together where there's no distractions or no stress and you pray and then you share with each other the things that the other person does that drive you crazy. Um, and it's mostly like the small stuff, like why do you have to squeeze the toothpaste from the middle of the tube? Why do you turn the toilet paper around so the end faces the wall? And why do you have to whistle while you shave? It's that kind of thing. So Peeves Night is this great tool because every marriage has those little annoyances, little irritations like that, which are really just differences of opinion. And if you talk about them all the time, whenever they come up, then what happens is that they always come up at the worst times. And so that every single one blows up into a fight and your marriage can start to feel like a constant bickering match. But on the other hand, if you never talk about them and hope they'll just go away, of course they don't go away. They just accumulate like snow until one of you hits their limit and explodes like an avalanche. Um, and neither of those outcomes is ideal for your marriage. So instead, what we recommend is a weekly peeves night, which dispenses with all those little disagreements in a calm and peaceful way and stops them accumulating. And it's been a great habit for my marriage, and I recommend it for your marriages, at least for the first couple of years of a new marriage. All right, now I share that because I think when Paul wrote Romans, he was conscious of writing to a group of people who were trying to do a difficult thing. They were trying to live together in community in a life-sharing, meaningful way. They were trying to experience real fellowship. And a bit like marriage, Christian fellowship is a rich and beautiful thing. And also like marriage, it creates conflict. If you bring one sinful human being close to another sinful human being, you're going to get friction and irritation and fighting. That is just what happens. And if you're not experiencing that, then you're not living very closely with other people. So a bit like Peeves Night, Paul wanted to establish some ground rules in the church to keep the wheels of love and fellowship turning smoothly. And that, I think, is why he wrote Romans chapter 14. And boy, do we need this word today. <laughs> so uh, open up your Bibles to Romans 14. It's page 948 of the church Bibles. Romans chapter 14. 
page 948, Romans 14. This whole chapter, chapter 14, is really all of one piece. It's one sustained argument, um, but it's big enough and complex enough and important enough that I think we should take our time looking at it. So we're going to break the chapter down over the next two Sundays, and today we're just going to look at verses 1 through 12. So to get us started this week, I want to think about, first, what causes conflicts and disagreements between Christians, Second, why our behavior is important, but then third, why the state of our hearts is much more important. So we'll sort of tee that up this week, and then next week we'll look at the second half of the chapter where Paul lays down the principles of preferring one another out of love. So this is stage one today. So first, what causes the conflicts and disagreements between Christians? Well, I already said that if you just put two sinners together, you're going to get conflict. And that is true, but there's much more going on here in uh, Romans 14. Because at the time Paul was writing, a brand new thing was happening in the world. Jewish people were putting their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, and Gentile pagans were putting their faith in Jesus as, th as their Savior too, the same Savior. And these two totally separate, disparate groups of people were coming together to worship side by side, to share lives together, to love one another, and to walk in fellowship together, really for the first time in history. It's a really big deal. Um, and in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about this as a marriage of nations. So, next um, so Jesus, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2, is breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between two nations, two historic enemies, and he's making one new man in place of the two. It's a kind of marriage, and it's as beautiful as marriage, and it's also as hard as marriage. Here in Romans, the whole letter so far has been focused on how Jews and Gentiles come together under Jesus how they come together theologically and spiritually and now practically. And where we've come from is going to have an impact on how we behave now. So Paul calls for grace and for patience with one another as we work that through. And I want to look particularly at the two examples that he raises in this passage. So the first verse of uh, Romans 14 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So that's the first example. On our Wednesday Bible study, Donald Parks quipped, is that why he's weak? Because he only eats vegetables? <laughs> uh, but no, that's not what he means. Um, so the first example is that the person who only eats vegetables. The second example is in verse 5. It, Paul says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And these two examples are really very closely connected. They're both examples of religious observance, okay? So it's not just personal preference. Like, we all of us know vegetarians who don't eat meat either for health reasons or because they don't like the way that animals are treated in this country or they just don't like the taste of meat. And that's fine for Christians to have different opinions about that. But that's not what's going on in Romans 14. Paul makes it clear in verse, in verse 6 that these are religious observances. They're done for God's sake, okay? Uh, but they're different because he says one, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now that's, that might seem kind of weird because why would Christian religious practices be different? Aren't we worshiping the same God? Does he want us to eat it or not eat it? Surely he knows. And, uh, and why would he, uh, he have different rules for different people? Someone has to be right. Someone has to be wrong. 
And if that's the way we're thinking about it, you can see why that quickly gets us to quarreling over opinions, as verse 1 says, and then despising and judging each other. And these are precisely the things that Paul is hoping to avoid. So how can it be that different religious practices are acceptable when there's only one truth? So let's think really hard about the two examples that Paul gives here. We've got to think about where these people might be coming from and why they might be doing what they're doing in honor of Jesus. So imagine first a Jewish believer in Rome in the first century. They might be eager to keep the Jewish food laws uh, in honor of Jesus. And that would be good and right. There's every reason to think that Paul and Peter and the other apostles continued to keep their Jewish religious practices after they received the Holy Spirit and all through their lives while they led the church. As we read through Acts, we see that they kept the Sabbath. They were to be found in the synagogue. They didn't eat pork or shellfish or the other foods forbidden by Moses. They never ate blood. In other words, they didn't stop being Jewish when they accepted Jesus as their Messiah. They would say they were now followers of the perfect Jew. It's just like a man doesn't stop being a man when he marries a woman, and a Jewish man doesn't stop being Jewish when he accepts Jesus as his savior. But Paul, as he went around the Gentile world teaching the Gentiles the gospel, was often accused of telling Jewish people to stop following Jewish customs. That was a, a slander that was placed on him. Uh, and when he heard about it, he not only denied it, but he responded in Acts 20 by shaving his head and following a Jewish purification ritual so that, as Bishop James of Jerusalem said, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you also live in observance of the law. You also live in observance of the law. Also, as in, as I do, and as Peter does. So um, keeping the Jewish food laws would have been a good and right thing for a, a Jewish follower of Jesus who is living in Rome. But imagine the situation. I think it could have been really difficult. The whole meat market was fraught with danger, wasn't it? So some of the meat that was there had been sacrificed to idols, but was it clear which? Was there a label of idol meat? Um, and was anyone ensuring that the animals in the meat market in Rome were slaughtered according to kosher standards? It's easy to imagine that a conscientious Jewish disciple might just decide it was easier and simpler to abstain from meat altogether and only eat vegetables. Now think about the other side of the fence. A similar problem might face a conscientious Gentile former pagan. Imagine him last year just guzzling down meat that had been sacrificed to idols, but now he's been rescued by Jesus. He's turned his back on his former idolatry. He wants nothing to do with that ever again. And in order to make absolutely sure of it, he just doesn't eat any meat at all. So you can imagine that there might be a Jewish believer in Jesus and a Gentile believer in Jesus, both in Rome, choosing a vegetarian diet for two very different reasons that were both attempts to honor Jesus. It was based on where they had come from and what Jesus had done for them. And you might also have had other Jewish believers and Gentile believers who were perfectly happy to eat meat and couldn't understand the ones who didn't. So I hope now we're starting to see the root of this problem and to recognize it. Our religion is really a relationship and relationships are complicated. So when it came to special days, there were similar question marks like, should the Sabbath continue to be Saturday? Or was the emerging practice of marking Sunday as the Lord's Day an acceptable alternative? And what about feast days? Christianity didn't really have any yet. So uh, did Gentiles fold in with the Jewish feast days, like Passover and Pentecost? Or was it okay for them to party on the Roman feast days, even though they were connected with pagan gods? We can imagine how the early Christians came to different conclusions. 
So first, if that was how some of these conflicts came about, now second, what does Paul say about them? And he says that the you know, conclusions on these questions are important. They are important, okay? <laughs> Hear that? Because if Paul were a 21st century man, he might have said, oh, all this stuff is small potatoes. It's not a biggie. Just do whatever feels right to you guys. Go with your gut. Please stop making a big deal of it. He doesn't say any of that, does he? If you look at what he says uh, in verse 5, Paul says, each one of you should be fully convinced in his own mind. So just because Christians come down differently on certain questions of behavior doesn't mean that we can have an anything goes attitude. We can't just say, who cares? Just do whatever you want. Because what we do uh, for Jesus matters. What we do to honor him matters. We have a Lord and we have a judge. And Paul reminds the church in verse 12 that each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's one of Paul's few like individual statements. It means we're going to be individually evaluated. So another Christian's earnest decision about how they might follow Jesus might be right for them and not right for us. What for them might be a costly sacrifice might not cost us anything at all. And what Jesus receives from them as a precious gift, he might not even want from us, which is all the more reason for each of us to be fully convinced in our own minds, to be scrupulous in making all our lifestyle choices deliberately for the sake of honoring and worshiping God. So we're not just choosing uh, them because they're easy or trendy or self-serving or just what everyone else is doing but because we're fully convinced that it's what Jesus wants from us. So Paul says here that behavior is important, even in the, in the little things. And everything in this whole chapter is little. Uh, the language Paul uses in verse 1 is, don't quarrel over opinions. And that Greek word means disputable matters. So we're not talking here about matters of truth, which are revealed from God, or matters of ethics, which are also firmly established. In these areas of belief and behavior, God has shown us what is right in his word. And if we think differently, it doesn't matter how firmly convinced we are in our own minds, we're still wrong. Um, but here in this chapter, we're talking about non-essentials, secondary matters like eating and drinking, clothing, celebrating festivals. They're matters of opinion, non-essential, but still important. So when Paul looks at the person who only eats vegetables, even though they are a Christian brother, they're a servant of God for whom Jesus died. Even though they're abstaining from meat for Jesus' sake, Paul still looks at that person and says, they are weak in faith. So verse 2, he says, the weak person eats only vegetables. And in verse 1, he elucidates that the weakness is in their faith. And that word weak is strongly negative. It means frail, sickly, or diseased. And for a Christian to have weakness in their faith is in no way a flattering statement. So when Paul looks at the person who avoids eating any meat, either because it's an overreaction to their former paganism, or it's an overcautious allegiance to kosher law, he says it's weakness. It doesn't demonstrate the glorious freedom of the children of God, the freedom of being fully alive that comes through faith in his gospel. It's still a bit nervous. A bit awkward, a bit fearful in front of God. By contrast, strong faith and love for God would drive out that nervousness and replace it with confidence. And Paul would surely be praying for that process to happen in these people's lives. But in the meantime, the person who's weak in faith needs to be welcomed by the church. Not judged by the small stuff when they're making great progress on the big stuff. On believing the truth about Jesus and trying to live their life to please him. 
Okay, so our behavioral choices in these secondary matters are important, it's important to say. But then the third point, um, Paul also says what's going on in our hearts is much more important. And as followers of Jesus, the outside effects of our faith might sometimes look different, but what's happening on the inside is always the same. So look back again at verse 6, where Paul says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So coming back to Paul's example of food, the person who is eating is honoring the Lord and giving thanks to God, and the person who is not eating is honoring the Lord and giving thanks to God. The outside might look different, even opposite, but the inside looks exactly the same. If people are Christians, then neither one of them is living for himself. Both are living for the sake of Jesus, in response to Jesus dying and rising to save them. And that's the factor that's most important. What happens on the outside is important and worth our firm decision in our own minds, but what happens on the inside is much more important. The heart attitude that wants to live to please Jesus in every way. And on the inside, Christians look the same. Now, that being the case, we can imagine how it would break Paul's heart to see these Christians judging and despising each other. When both hearts are earnestly seeking to love and honor Jesus, even down to the small stuff, the secondary matters, how terrible it would be for one to despise the other, to judge the other, to only see the trivial external differences and miss the enormous commonality. You are brothers. You've been saved by the same Lord Jesus. You've been paid for by the same blood indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. You pray to the same Father and you devote yourself to the service of the same Lord. How then could you be enemies? Why would you exclude one whom God has welcomed and tear down the work God has been doing? That would be such a tragedy. So Paul's bottom line in the first half of Romans is don't divide the Christian community over the non-essentials, but recognize your brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ and welcome each other as God has welcomed you. So it comes down to the three commands that Sarah showed to the children. Don't quarrel, don't judge, and don't despise. The great theologian Richard Baxter summed up this whole passage in this neat little formula. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So as we put these words into practice today, where do the conflicts still exist in the church? And what should we do about them? As we look at our church today, we don't really face exactly the same challenges that Paul's talking about in Romans 14. Eating or not eating meat is much less of a focus of our religious devotion today. And there aren't many conflicts about holy days. It's not that there are none, just not many. Instead, we see much bigger things going on, especially over questions like, should Christians drink alcohol? Because you probably know that there are several Christian denominations that teach that Christians should not drink any alcohol, while others, including ours, allow alcohol in moderation. Another question that gets debated is, should Christian women dress in a certain way, especially when they're in church? Like some of the very traditional churches still insist on women covering their heads in worship. Some still dictate that women shouldn't wear makeup or jewelry. And even more, uh, even recently in the mainstream churches, there was a debate about yoga pants. Um, 
A more common debate is over Christian worship styles. Should we have more music in our worship or more silence? Chorus songs or hymns? More focus on the word or the sacraments or the charismatic gifts? Should our prayers be from a written liturgy or be free and extemporaneous? And a surprising amount of fighting can come into these questions. But Paul commands us not to scorn or to despise one another for the way we devote ourselves to the Lord, but to recognize the work of God in other Christians, to welcome them, to love them, and to trust that God is able to make them stand. And I think a good question for our hearts to ask when we see other Christians worshiping differently is, are they honoring the Lord better than I am? Is it possible that their faith is stronger than mine? Is it possible that I should be following their example? Because God gave us to each other and married us together to get the best out of all of us. And each of us will give an account of himself to God. So just as an example, I'd like to talk about this church's relationship with the Family and Worship and Praise Center, um, who owns this property and who rents it to us. Um, because when you think about our congregation and the Family, Worship and Praise Center, we come down differently on every question that I just raised. Um, their worship is loud and energetic and modern, while ours is more quiet and traditional and meditative. They're a lot more free and extemporaneous, while we're much more liturgical. Their congregation dresses up for worship while we dress casually, and they teach total abstinence from alcohol. Um, so you might expect that two groups of Christians like these would have a really hard time welcoming each other. Um, but glory be to God, I'd like to just testify that on the contrary, FWPC is extremely kind, welcoming, generous to us. They're just wonderfully flexible, supportive landlords. And since we first moved here to their building, they have prayed for the flourishing of our church and our mission as we pray for theirs. So despite all the many differences, God is clearly with them and in their midst. They love and worship the same Jesus that we love and worship. And when I have been to their, uh, their prayer meetings that they had here on Monday nights, I've personally been miraculously healed. So the experience of living and ministering side by side has been that the external differences, although not unimportant, just seem very small against our common love for Jesus and our desire to worship him. And the shared joy we have that we, even we, have been welcomed into the kingdom of God. Jesus, who died for each one of us, desires that we love and welcome one another. So let's make sure that we do. Amen.